Hello there. Are you sure you're in the right place? See the name on the door? This podcast is spine chillers and serial killers. Surely you don't want to come in here. You do. Well, I must warn you that things are pretty adult in here. Absolutely no children are allowed. Obscene language, shocking and horrendous stories to chill you to your core, and terrifying tales that'll keep you up at night. The ladies inside aren't quite right. Lovely and hilarious, but very... strange. Still want in, do you? Well, you'll get what you're here for. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to this week's Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. I'm Tash. And I'm Becky. Woo. And we are sans Emma tonight. She's not feeling very well, so you've just got to do with Becky and I. We will do our hardest to keep this train running. Yes. But we hope you enjoy it and we hope Emma enjoys it. So hello, Emma. Yeah. Hi, Emma. Uh, We love you. We miss you. And... We're getting this done, like the troopers we are. Yeah. But we said that we were going to report, record a podcast, but actually we just decided we're just going to have a group nap. So everyone, <laughs> after Good three, night. one, two, and <laughs> sleep. <laughs> um, How's your week been, Becky? Well, yeah, yeah, it's been fine. It's just bloody very, very cold in France. Oh, so cold. So I think it's the same in the UK, but yeah, as to be really expected when it's January in this part Indeed. of the world. So it's true. I think our little Emmakins has actually sent me. Normally Emma does the beginning of the podcast and I do F all. So <laughs> she sent me a few things that we can have a look at that I can read out and stuff. This week. Okay, great. So we got a message from Carabeth who has written in before. Um, hey, Cara, Beth, how are you? So she's written in to tell us about her dressmaker's doll. It's a doll, you know, like when, well, dressmakers are making dresses and they have that like... Like a mannequin with no head, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one, no head, no arms. Yeah. Well, this one is a little bit special because it's the freakiest one I've ever seen. So I'm going to have to send you the picture. So it's a dressmaker's doll with a freaky, freaky face. And her husband likes to randomly hide it throughout the house. Right, um, so you're going to say that when you said her husband likes to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got a picture here. She's in one of the rooms under the stairs, and she's she's also found it randomly in closets, in the garage, in the doorway of rooms, and in the shower with the curtain closed, which I'm sure was. Oh great. my god! <laughs> I also really like. Her husband. It sounds like he'd get on with my husband. He sounds so, jokes. Absolute jokes. Yeah. Are you sending it to me? Yeah. There's one. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh! Why is his face like that? It's like... 
Oh, Phantom mm. of the Opera mixed with yes. if Phantom of the Opera had a baby with Scream. Yeah, and that's Jason creepy. was thrown in there as well. Yeah, on a, on a man on a dress mannequin. So yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That one with and the cape. There's on a it. second. There's a second one. Um, where it's wearing like a a Halloween cloak, and it just makes it just really sets the mood for Halloween. No need to buy any other decorations. That'll that'll do. They do keep a hooded cape on her, red, and she likes to stand in the garage window with a red light on her face to scare kids on Halloween. Oh, that's very well done. Traumatized well done, the whole guys. village. Yeah, we've also got a little comment on our comments page about the podcast it's from someone called amy bet or amy betty hello amy it says this american is absolutely in love with you for many reasons but definitely because of your description of florida which is entirely accurate accurate (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you florida the little willy bit that comes off the bottom of america (laughs) So yeah, if anyone else wants to leave us message messages on Spotify, so it's a Spotify message. Uh, if I'd have read a little bit further down, I would have known this. So yeah, if you want to leave us comments, messages on Spotify, please do. It's free. And then it also gives us a little laugh and it always warms our little stone cold hearts to read your little comments. So it's always great. Thank you very much. Yeah, please do. Yeah. And then she's also sent me a YouTube clip of more 10 foot aliens that have been seen in Brazil. So I'm, Ooh. I will post that to our Facebook page. Please do, Bex. That looks terrifying and I don't want to click on it now. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how I think that I'm literally the funniest person in the whole entire world? Yeah, because it's mostly true, but yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> and you know how. Big fan. <laughs> I'm the biggest fan. If somebody tells me that I'm not going to do something, that I then think, well, I fucking am now. Yeah. Don't say I can't do that. Stubborn. <laughs> I, I did a, I did a thing last week. Um, so I went to London with a friend and we decided to go to Camden and I may or may not have got a tattoo on my finger and it is a tattoo of a moustache. So when I put it up to my face, she, which she's I've doing now. <laughs> a tash on a tash. I will post a little picture to our Instagram to show you all. But there is some dispute as to whether it's real or not. I can confirm that it is completely real. And I don't regret it one bit. And I do think I'm absolutely hilarious. Yeah. So not only am I now tash with a tash, if I'm ever in a sticky situation, I need to leave quickly. Just put my tash up to my face and say moustache yeah and be gone instant disguise yeah so if anyone's got any other funny moustache puns do let me know because uh, i want to use them all the time yeah and i just want you all to know that she told you about the moustache whilst putting the moustache on over a lip for the whole thing it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who i am now just permanently got my finger up to me nose so every single time she says something she's like I've said this, or did I? And then puts the finger yeah. Oh, will I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so many uses. So many uses. And quite honestly, one of the funniest things I've ever done. 
Yeah, I thought the time that you were sick on church ground and wiped your face on the grass, I thought that was one of the funniest ones, things that you did. I was young, dumb, and needed to be sick. <laughs> Not funny. <laughs> well, let's cut that out. Um, cut that out, Emma, please. I tell you what I was full of, Manzana. Oh, disgusting. That was the time we were with, was that the time we were with our friend and her boyfriend at the time told her to stop drinking and he told her to choose between the drink or him and she said, I can't yeah. choose, it's too difficult. Yeah, no, but she well, didn't just say, I can't choose, she was crying and going, I can't choose. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Um, oh, we were so young and young. dumb and... Yeah. Absolutely full of apple, disgusting apple alcohol liqueur. Why did we buy that? Yeah, I go buy it sometimes in the supermarket, and I'm just like, oh, shudder. Yeah, great times, great times. Anyway, Becky, I believe you are the one and only one with the story tonight. Yes. So, um, I put my listening ears on, and I'm ready to listen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We did have a quick chat with Emma before. Just a very, very quick chat because she uh, needed to go to, back to bed. <laughs> um, and she wanted a happy murder, as every so often she requests one. And I'm sorry that this really isn't. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd do another Frenchie murder. So the story this week starts with a little girl called Cécile Blush. So, Cécile was born on the 27th of January, 1975, in blanc in the department of Seine-Saint-Denis, in the 93 area of France. She is the daughter of Jean-Pierre and Suzanne Bloch. I mean, Jean-Pierre, you can't Jean get Pierre. more French than that, can you? Any Jean name is just spews French, doesn't it? What's yeah, the worst yeah, one? Yeah. Is Jean... Jean something, what is that? What's the most? Jean-Claude, Jean Jean-Étienne. Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc. Jean-Yves. Yeah. I love the, all the Jeans. I love all the Jeans, but no one ever names their child Jean or anything anymore. That's just. It's quite old fashioned, isn't it? Yeah. They're all Enzo and like. Mael. Um, yeah. yeah. So many Mael is in my children's classes. Anyway, so she's the daughter of Jean-Pierre and Suzanne Bloch. So both were social workers. Uh, the little girl is the couple's only child together, but she has two half-brothers that were born in the early 60s that were from her mother, Suzanne's first marriage. So they were called Fre Frédéric, so Frédéric and Luc Richard. Okay. When Cécile was born in 1975, they lived in Aulnay-sous-Bois in Seine-Saint-Denis. It's just outside of Paris. So during 1980, in anticipation of Cécile entering C CP, which is like the first year of primary school, after yeah. preschool, you know this, Tash, but I'm just trying to... So the children are about six years old when they go into CP. Jean-Pierre and Susan decided to move into Paris to give their children more opportunities as uh, Cécile uh, will be going through school and Frédéric and Jean-Luc will be going more higher education. If they're in Paris, it's just loads more opportunities for them growing up. So they move into the 19th arrondissement of Paris in a, an apartment building called Fontainebleau. So it's in the south of Paris. 
Right. The year following the the family's move to the apartment building, Frederick, so the eldest of her two half brothers, um, flew the nest. From 1981 onwards, their family was just like a family of four. So it's Luke, Cecile, and the parents. Cecile turns out to be a model child. She is an excellent student, very responsible and independent. She quickly developed a taste for music, and she really, really loved playing the violin. She was the pride of her parents, and also her half-brother, Luke, just adored her, and they actually had a really good relationship, which is good because they had quite a big age gap. Yeah. But I think it was a big enough age gap that Luke would just wanted to protect his little sister. Yeah. So, because... He loves spending time with his little sister. Luke also learned how to play the flute. So not the recorder, the actual flute that you hold on the side of your flute. Yeah. In order so that he can play like little duets with his sister to make her happy, which is really, really sweet. That's so sweet. What a lovely big brother. Yeah. So by 1986, Cecile was 11 years old. She had that typical french haircut the bouncy brown curls where it's like just above shoulder length do you know what i mean (laughs) that kind of like a french crop i see it right in my eyes yeah we'll put pictures up anyway but that typical french bouncy curly hair fair skin and dark eyes she was in her second year at georges rouault secondary school which was not far from her home so since the year before cecile walked to school alone she also came home for lunch and walked back again which is very common in france if you live within walking distance from the school yeah and every lunchtime when she gets home the the house phone rings and it's always one of her parents just to check that she's okay that she's got in and that she's getting her dinner so every day they do that without fail Cecile is still really enjoying school. She's still a great student, still passionate about the violin, even though all these years later. She's part of the orchestra, youth orchestra in the area, and her parents take her there every weekend for rehearsals. She loved music so much that she wanted to make it her career, so she wanted to to pursue the violin going on in her education. So seeing this, her parents had made the decision that from the start of the following school year, they were going to change schools and put her in a specialised establishment that would be able to combine her studies and like a more intensive practice of violin. So it's one of those music schools. You see them every now and again in France uh, and I assume everywhere else. But Yeah, definitely. Always very posh schools they are. Mm. Yeah. So Cecile had a little life planned out at 11, which was amazing because sweet, I'm yeah. 30, how old am I? 33. <laughs> I don't know what I do. I'm still, I'm still, still growing no up. fucking clue, mate. Still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So on the morning of Monday, the 15th of May, 1986, around 20 to 9 in the morning, whilst leaving for school, Cecile would cross paths with a real-life monster. As Cecile left her apartment and walked towards the elevator, the lift, she had no idea what evil awaited her inside the lift. 
God. This man had spent the last 40 minutes going up and down between the 10th floor and the second basement, waiting for the perfect prey to get onto the lift with him. Which is terrifying. Horrendous. Horrendous. It really creeped me out when, um, well, it sent a, sh- a shudder, like a shiver down my spine when, uh, when I read that. As Cecile enters the elevator, being the polite girl she was, she probably greeted the stranger with a hello. But that's when the man would turn and force the little girl to follow him all the way down to the third and lowest basement of the apartment building. I don't know why, but the fact that there's a third basement freaks me the fuck out. What's down there? I think it's parking. Like an underground, oh, under apartment sense, parking. Yeah. I think that's one and two. And then further down, I'm not sure what it was. I think it looks on some of the pictures that I'd seen that it looked like a car, like an underground car park. But it's, oh, the third basement. You just think, oh, horrors. So yeah, he made her go down to the third basement with him. That lunchtime, when Cecile's mother called the apartment, she received no answer. Worried, she called the school, who informed her that Cecile had not turned up for class, and then instantly she knew that something serious must have happened to her. So this is still quite a normal thing in France. I don't know if in England, if your kid doesn't turn up to school, do they not ring you? Uh, They would now. Yeah, well, in France they still don't. What, so if you if your kid doesn't go into school, they just assume they're homesick? Yeah. No, so if we haven't, if you don't call up mm. or email to say that your child's ill, they'll call you. It's a safeguarding issue. Yeah, well, I've I've had um, some schools where we used to live near Nantes. They used to ring, uh, like if I was a little bit late ringing them to say that one of the kids is ill, they'd ring me. Whereas no, especially since COVID, they just That's don't ring. That's wild that they don't. Yeah, I think it does definitely depend on depend on the school. Not all schools are like that. Yeah, so Cecile's mum knew something bad had happened. So she rang Cecile's dad and said, right, we need to get back home and, and look for her. So they searched for their apartment and couldn't find her anywhere. Couldn't find any signs of a struggle in the apartment, but they couldn't see her anywhere. So they called the police. The police sent out a search for her, sent out a few patrols, and they were worried as well with the police. And later that evening, they would find Cecile's body in the third basement covered in an old rug. Bless her She had been sexually assaulted, then strangled, and she also had a knife wound to her abdomen. What a piece of shit. Oh, no. That poor girl. I know. Little love. Police would interview everyone who lives in the apartment building and multiple people, including Cecile's parents and brother, mentioned the man in the elevator. You know, like sometimes you cross paths with people. He kept like getting off the elevator or or saying, oh, I'm going down to this floor or I'm going to this floor, like making like a little bit of small talk with the person in there. Yeah. So um, he just looked like he was going somewhere else. But yeah, at least 10 people came forward about this man in the, wow. in the elevator. So they described a man that was around 25 years old, very, very regular looking, like nothing. Nothing remarkable. Yeah. 
No. Apart from some marks on his face, you know, like acne scars, acne mm-hmm. marks. Um, he also apparently looked a bit unkempt. So maybe police thought at first that it could be a local homeless person, but they couldn't find anyone matching the description. So they have no leads. Obviously, they look into the parents and everything like they normally do, but everyone's accounted for. The ki- the, the brothers at school, the kids, are, uh, the parents were at work. They all have alibis. So the case kind of goes cold. A year later, on the 26th of October, 14-year-old Marianne, so I've only just got her first name because uh, a lot of these were obviously underage, so we've only got their first names. Yeah. If that's the real names. And so 14-year-old Marianne came home from school for lunch again when she is approached by a man at the front of her building. The man claims to be a police officer and makes her take him to her apartment. Once he was in her apartment, he would tie her up and sexually assault her. And thankfully, this time he doesn't kill her. What a piece of shit. Who the fuck is this bloke? Yeah, and uh, he'd tied up poor Cecile as well when he'd killed her. So Marianne would give a description to the police that roughly the same thing, 25-year-old man, with what she said was a pockmarked face. So like an acne-scarred face. Police would eventually tie this case to Cecile's murder and also another sexual assault that had happened about one month before Cecile's murder. It was a young seven-year-old girl who he had sexually assaulted and strangled, tied up, left for dead in the basement of her building. But luckily, she survived. She wasn't. She was just unconscious when he dumped her, but he thought she was dead. Right. And again, she had at the time described a man with a pockmarked face. So this made him known as Le Grilly, which is the pockmarked killer or the pockmarked man, is what it translates as. Police determined that looking at the time of day that the attacks happened, or that they've been happening, they don't think this person has a normal nine-to-five job. Could be someone that possibly works in security or possibly in a position of authority, so maybe a police officer. Then nothing really happens until 1994. So in 1994, in the Seine-en-Marne Department of France, which is east of Paris, yeah, an 11-year-old girl was just like walking along the street and then this man came up and tried to kidnap and rape her. But luckily, she kind of talked her way out of it. She kept talking to him, asking him questions, kind of pretending to be interested in what he had to say. And then, like, other people saw them together and stuff, and the guy, I think, got a bit spooked. Right. And he just let her go. And she'd go on to actually match his description to the previous ones uh, that he had a really marked face. And um, she actually saw a composite sketch of the previous cases in Paris and said, that's the same guy, same eyes, same type of face. It's definitely the same man. Then we have another big jump. In 2001, DNA was tested that was taken from the crime scenes that the Popmark killer had uh, been associated with. Mm. And that officially linked the cases that we've just previously mentioned. But 
it also matched his DNA to a murder that was committed in 1987. This was a horrific double murder. So it was a young au pair named Ermgard Muller, who was 21, and her employer, Gilles Politi, who was 38. Gilles had been found tied up on the sofa with his hand, like hogtied, you know, when they got their hands behind their back and, and legs like dr- drawn up to their bodies. He had been tortured with a knife and burnt with cigarettes until he bled out. The cigarettes that were found at the scene were actually where the DNA was taken from. And Ermgard was found in the bedroom. So she was tied to a bunk bed. So imagine standing next to a bunk bed and holding your arms out and your legs out like in an X shape. Yeah. That's how she was tied to the bed. That's vile. Like, like a bit like Jesus. Yeah. Um, horrific. And she had been tortured with a knife and assaulted as well. Awful. The person had cut her throat before they left. That's vile. It was just vile. It terrible. And the police officers that had to deal with this murder, some of them just, um, he says it, that's just the, the sort of murder that you do not forget. Mm. you don't forget it it was like i watched one of the interviews and he says you know you see these you see these things and it's part of your job but he says you know there's just you'll always see them as people and there's certain things that are just worse than others um and he says this was one of the worst ones that he remembers just because of the the violence that went into it he'd also been linked to this kidnapping so in june 1994 in Seine-et-Marne as well so the the region just east of Paris, a young girl called Ingrid was w- riding her bike down a country road, like a forest road. Right. When a, a man in a white car pulls up beside her and says that he, again, that he's a police officer, shows a badge and says, you can't dry, ride your bike here. Get in your, get in my car. I'm going to take you to the police station. What the fuck? He grabs her and handcuffs her, so an 11-year-old child, handcuffs her and puts her in his car. The young girl knows something's wrong and it just gets worse when he turns in the opposite direction to the town that he says that he was going to take her to. And they drove around for over an hour before he eventually stopped at an abandoned farm where he tied her up and sexually assaulted her for hours. He ended up leaving her there without killing her. Again, thank God for that, but poor love. She managed to get free and go and find help. But it's just horrific. And it's just so, what the police were saying at the time, he was just so confident and so, you know, he put her in his car. People could see her in his car if he he drove round by people. He was just so overconfident and cocky about the whole thing. And, you know, he didn't cover his face. I think his face was just so... Apart from the, the the scars and stuff, it's just a very ge- generic faith. Yes, we've got a white In France, just a very typical, yeah. So all the cases that I've been talking about have been left unsolved, uh, despite having the DNA linking the crimes, because they don't have the DNA of the person that belongs to. Right, so his his DNA isn't on file. It's on file yeah, because, because they of these murders, extracted but, it, but they haven't 
he obviously hasn't committed any other crime where he's given his DNA. That he's been caught, yeah. Jesus. They've matched him to the other cases, but not the person yet. So back to the Block family, so Cecile's mum and dad. The uh, Block family experienced a second tragedy in 1989 with the loss of uh, Suzanne Bloch in a road accident. Jean-Pierre, Cécile's father, fought for justice for his daughter until the end of his life in 2011. Oh, bless him. When his father-in-law died, Luc Richard, so the big brother, who adored his little sister, well, they both do, but Luke was still living with them when Cécile was taken. Luke took up the torch and led a fight of his life, he'd say, that it was. He and the other victims' families set up a Together Find the Popmark Killer website. So it's Ensemble pour trouver le grillé, or something like that, they called it. And this was a, a massive case. I've seen it loads of times, and you know, on like the, the French version of um, Forensic Files. <laughs> yeah. Le grillé is a very, very famous case here. Things took a, a small turn in 2014 when a new judge, like a new kind of prosecutor, was put in charge of the Grudis, so the Potmark Killers case. She decided to go big, and with the fact that most police officers thought that this killer, and a lot of the public as well, was actually a police officer or someone in security. Mm. So the new judge on the job was a, a woman called Natalie Turki, and she requested DNA from over 150 police officers that were in working in the area at the time in an attempt to catch the killer. So any police officers that were working in the area at the time that hadn't had to give their DNA because of a case, you know, like if a, if a police officer's on scene where something's happened but they cut themselves yeah. or accidentally touched something... You know, that when they have to take out their DNA from the investigation, yeah. they have to give their DNA over. So anyone that hadn't done, that was working in the area at the time, it ended up to be about 750 police officers. Obviously, that's a lot of people to get through and find as well, because this is like 20 years later. And you know what France is like with paperwork? It takes oh, forever. Love it, but I think DNA, no matter where you are, is a long process. Yeah. It takes a long time. There's a lot of, a lot of people in the queue. It's taken forever, but it would pay off. On the 26th of September, 2021. So right up to almost present day, ex police officer Francois Vérovy received his phone call to request a DNA sample. It was the day that he had been dreading ever since he heard about Judge Turkey's DNA plan. He would take the coward's way out and run away. Of course he did, fucking pussy. Yeah. He rented an apartment for a few days in the guard area of France in Gros du Roi. No idea what that is. And he would, three days later after his phone call, he would commit suicide with a mix of alcohol and painkillers. In a letter that he left in the apartment, he admits to being a heinous criminal who committed unforgivable acts until the end of the 1990s. This letter was addressed to his wife, so it wasn't addressed to the families, it was just trying to explain himself to his wife. 
he said to his wife in this letter, you detected things in me when I was younger, but I hid them very well. I hurt people. I killed innocent people. I think of you and I think of the families of the victims. He doesn't give the name of any of the victims and he doesn't really own up to a lot of it. He like washes over it rather quickly. He claims to have acted under the influence of impulses that he'd been having, explaining that he had a difficult childhood. Haven't we all? Mm, I don't think it was that bad either. I don't, I don't really go into it because I don't want to talk about this guy. He's a piece of shit. But, um, he asserts that he didn't do anything after he was married and after, like, and after he was married and they had children. It was all leading up to when he was married. He said that once he was married, he was satisfied with his life. So what was he raping his wife every night then? I don't know. I don't know. Fucking, well, this is what he says. On the night of the 30th of September, the Paris prosecutor's office announced that a DNA comparison had been established as a match between the, the DNA at the crime scenes and Francois Verovey's DNA match. We finally got our killer. But the fact that in his letter that he said that he's done nothing since 1997 and the kidnapping and murders that I talked about ended in 1994. This implies that he did do other crimes and possibly other murders after what we have definitely linked him to. Yeah. Because we've only done up to 1994, so there was other crimes after that. So police are looking currently looking into up to 31 other victims, of which nine are murders. The infuriating thing is, in France, once a person is dead, they cannot be judged. So we all know it's him that committed these crimes, yet he cannot actually be found guilty because he doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Which... Is a stupid, I know it's just like French, like how they've worded the law and that. You cannot judge a person that's deceased because they cannot defend themselves. It is him, but there's been, he's not officially but the fact guilty that of he it. Killed you know what I mean? Himself because Admitting he was it as well. Like, yeah. So not only is the evidence there in terms of DNA, he admitted it in a letter and then he killed himself. Yeah. But obviously, because they can't, they can't put a dead man on trial. No, I get, yeah, yeah just but... the way that the French law is, is they cannot actually. He's not. He can't be found officially guilty of the crime, even though he did, and everyone knows that he did it, mm-hmm. and that he did do it. So obviously, this gave the victims' families the closure that they needed. Well, kind of because he was he took the coward's way out and didn't get punished for it. But at least they know that he's gone and he's not hurting anyone else. So the victim's family said that on behalf of the entire team at Together Find the Popmark Killers site, we wanted to use this page to now pay tribute to Cecile to show that she is never forgotten, as well as expressing a moved and sincere thoughts to and all of our sympathy to her friends and family 
who fought for more than 35 years to get justice and show that she did not die for nothing. And they also put out their sympathies and love to all of the other families and the other victims. Um, they said that even though they, the killer has been identified and it's a relief, Cecile's brother says that he deeply regrets that he couldn't have killed him himself. Wow. The fact that he just didn't even go to prison, you know, and yeah, took the cow's way out. Isn't it? Just shows that he is just a piece of shit, basically, he said. But he said it in a really flowery French way that sounded just really, you know, it really gets you there and you think, oh, some people are just so strong. But yeah, that's my story this week, the pockmarked killer. Well done. Thank you. I was a police officer. Yeah. Scary, isn't it? Yeah, very, very scary. And he just looks like a piece of shit. I bet he does. He absolutely does. We'll put some, uh, I'll send some pictures to Emma to put on the Facebook site. Well, thank you very much, Becky. That was a good story as always. Um, we hope you have all enjoyed listening. Um, we really love hearing from you guys. So please do get in touch on any of our social media platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Um, you can find us at SCSK underscore podcast. Our Facebook is simply Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. Um, and please do like, um, and subscribe to our podcast on either Apple or Spotify, um, wherever you listen to your podcast or on all the major platforms. Um, leave a little review. We really appreciate that as well. Yeah. All that she said. <laughs> all that I said. All that you said. And we also have an email address if you did want to email in or if you have any light story suggestions, but obviously all of our other social media is there as well. So our email address is chillers.killers.pod at gmail.com. We look yeah. forward to hearing from you. Yeah. And next time we will be back to our normal trio, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, as long as Emma doesn't somehow infect the rest of us through the phone, which I think is impossible. Oh, that's <laughs> fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> it will. We hope you get better soon, Emma. We have missed you yeah. and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Yes. Okay, then. In the meantime, guys, stay safe. Don't kill people. And keep, keep it weird. weird. Bye. Bye-bye. Psst. Hey, you. Psst. Over here. Don't look at me, I'm hideous. Don't come too close. I don't want to give you the plague. Because of my disease, this episode was very short. And there was a definite lack of bloopers. So I thought I'd slip in one terrifying tale for you guys to go to sleep with tonight. If you want to, that is. Yeah, I thought you would. In the heart of a dense, mist-covered jungle, there lived a capybara unlike any other. His name was Gary. And from the day he was born, he despised the water. 
while his fellow capybaras frolicked and played in the serene pools of their habitat. Gary preferred the safety and solidity of dry land. But his aversion to water came at a cost. For capybaras are social creatures, bonding over playful swims and communal grooming sessions. Gary, isolated by his fear, found himself shunned by his peers. Loneliness became his constant companion, each day a painful reminder of his solitary existence. His heart heavy with sorrow, Gary wandered the jungle, the echoes of laughter and splashing tormenting him wherever he went. But as the days turned into years, his anguish morphed into something darker, something sinister. On a moonless night in June 2018, Gary's life took a tragic turn. Annoyed by his refusal to join them in the water, a group of capybaras consumed by malice and resentment plotted against him. Under the guise of camaraderie, they lured Gary to the edge of the pool, promising him acceptance and friendship if he would only take a dip with them. Oblivious to their true intentions, Gary trusted his companions and ventured closer to the water's edge. But as he hesitated, sensing the treachery that lurked beneath their smiles, they struck. With a sudden shove, they sent Gary tumbling into the depth below. His panicked cries lost amidst the ripples of the water. Struggling against the currents, Gary fought for his life, his lungs burning as he gasped for air but it was too late. In the cold embrace of the water, his strength waned and darkness enveloped him. His body, lifeless and still, floated to the surface, a grim testament to the cruelty of his peers. But even in death, Gary's spirit refused to rest, consumed by bitterness and rage. He returned as a vengeful spectre, haunting the very pools he had once avoided. Under the cloak of darkness, he emerged from the shadows, his ethereal form casting an eerie glow upon the moist, tranquil waters. With a malevolent gleam in his eyes, he watched as unsuspecting capybaras ventured into the pool, unaware of the peril that lurked beneath the surface. With a flick of his spectral tail, Gary summoned the waters to his command transforming them into treacherous currents that dragged his victims into the depths below. Their frantic cries to help were silenced by the merciless embrace of the murky waters, their struggles futile against a vengeful spirit that sought retribution. As the body count rose, fear gripped the capybara community. Whispers of a malevolent force haunting the moist waters spreading like wildfire through the jungle. But try as they might, they could not escape the wrath of Gary, who prowled the pools with unrelenting determination. And so, the once serene oasis became a place of terror, a graveyard for those who dared to tread its murky depths. For Gary, the sad capybara, who had known only loneliness in life, had found a twisted form of companionship in death, the chilling embrace of revenge. And until his thirst of revenge was satisfied, he would continue to haunt the bathing pools, a 
a ghostly reminder of the consequences of rejection and betrayal. There. I hope you enjoyed that story. I must rest now. Till we meet once more, keep it weird. <laughs>